0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now, let's get started. Hey, everybody. You know I have many special guests when we're doing this, and I always say they're special because everybody that I work with is special to me. But this is a particularly special guest because this is someone who I consider a peer, a colleague, a friend, and someone who really pushes the field and the boundaries of the research and the work we do forward in so many ways. And so I want to introduce Dr. Stephanie Carr and say hi, Stephanie, and then we'll introduce you.
1: Hi, good morning, Rob. Thank you for having me here today.
0: Good morning Dr. Carnes. So let me say a little bit Dr. Carnes she is president of the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals that's IITAP ITAP. and she's also a fellow at the Meadows Treatment Center in Arizona. And I just have to say that Dr. Carnes is really not only a leading expert but she really uh, manages the training of most of the therapists in the United States to become experts in the field of sex addiction. That's what her training institute is about and they've trained thousands of people. So if you hear anybody talking about sex addiction they're speaking Dr. Stephanie Carnes talk. So welcome Dr. Carnes, I've been wanting to have you a long time and we have lots to talk about today. So what's going on in the news that we wanted to talk about today? I'll let you start.
1: Sure, well unfortunately there's been a horrible tragedy in the shootings in Atlanta and people are you know naturally devastated and upset. An individual went and shot many women, and a couple customers, I believe, at a at a massage parlor in Atlanta. And I'll just start off with saying, you know, my heart really goes out to all the families and the, the loss that they've experienced, in addition to the Asian community, who I think has experienced a lot of trauma and racism as a result of the pandemic this year, and naturally our very concerned that this was a hate crime, um, justifiably concerned. And I think the community and, and the world watching is just you know, naturally devastated and concerned about the events.
0: So Dr. Carnes, with all this, all this going on in the media, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to an expert at your level is this, you know, there are people on TV saying I murdered people because I'm a sex addict or the sex addiction made me do it kind of thing. And a lot of people don't understand sex addiction. They kind of think it's a joke at that. And then to combine it with murder, I think people are just like, what the heck is this all about? So I wanted to talk to you. I mean, do sex addicts, are they violent? Is, is that typical for their behavior?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a excellent question. And what, with sex addiction, we do not typically see violent tendencies. And with this young man, you know, I don't doubt that he struggled with porn and sex addiction as he's claiming But uh, it's likely that he suffered from additional uh, mental struggles. Uh, There's a lot of different mental illnesses that also can cause violent tendencies. And naturally, I haven't uh, interviewed him. I've never met him, so I can't diagnose his condition. Um, But things like, like psychotic disorders, for example, like schizophrenia, this is actually an age range that is very common to, uh, for schizophrenia to start in, in the early 20s. And also antisocial personality disorder is another mental illness that can
0: co-occur with sex addiction. Wait, wait I have to ask you this. What do you mean by co-occur? I, I'm not sure I understand that. Can you explain? Because I'm going to, you know, never know who's listening. I really want to make sure they understand the terms we're using.
1: Sure. So when when people have um, mental illness, they can have more than one and they can occur simultaneously and they can have symptoms of both uh, mental illnesses coming together. So with sex addiction, we typically don't see these violent tendencies, but they could have a mental illness in addition to their sex addiction that uh, has some characteristics that are creating violent tendencies.
0: So you're saying it's like you could be an alcoholic and also have bipolar disorder. You could be a, a gambler, some of the gambling disorder and also have schizophrenia that these major mental Ill- health illnesses can be at, happening at the same time. And then they confuse things, I guess, like because they're so troubled, they, they sort of spit out whatever comes to their mind is what the problem is. Is that what, what's going on here?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and clearly, you can see from his behavior he was experiencing intense suffering, right? He was obviously in a, um, a crisis state. And when people get extremely stressed and they have these other types of, of mental illnesses, um, you can see escalations of behavior that get you know very out of control and, and that's likely what happened in this situation.
0: Well, you know, one of the things I know, and by the way, Dr. Carnes and I have treated lots of folks together and worked together in a whole variety of writings, a whole variety of work. I've, you know, We've had a long, close association. But one of the things I have to say that I've been thinking is that some people are very, very crazy. Excuse the lack of a formal term, but sometimes they'll hate something about themselves. You know, and then they'll say, "Well, the problem is outside of me." You know, I can't. They can't tolerate the fact that they have the problem. So instead of saying, "I have to deal with this for myself," because they're so troubled, they'll say, "Well, those attractive people are the problem, or the porn is the problem," and they're unable to see themselves. And it, do you think it's sort of something like that?
1: Yeah. And, and sometimes in, like in psychotic disorders, they don't even realize that they have a problem. They may be hallucinating or completely you know, experiencing delusions. And so we don't know what, what was going on for him intrapsychically to lead him
0: to this point. So I, you know, we both talk about that, you know, I think we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. And uh, I think I can count on one hand the people who've been involved in any kind of violence. And usually that was some kind of domestic violence. And usually that was verbal and emotional abuse. I've always thought of sex addicts as actually being more passive because they get mad at someone and they go have sex with someone else. They don't actually express their feelings. So it wouldn't it be unusual for someone with some kind of addictive disorder to be that aggressive in that way, unless they're high or something
1: extremely, unless I would say it's towards themselves, because we have high rates of suicidality. And most often what I see is people will turn the aggression inwards and either hurt themselves or kill themselves. Now, that's not an uncommon problem, but directing violence outward is extremely uncommon
0: for this population. Unless they have, as you said, some other kind of profound mental disorder, which means with or without a sexual, I'm sure he had a sexual problem. I'm sure Errol Castro and all those crazy people had sex. But those weren't the leading issues that they had. They had much more profound issues. This guy might have killed grocery store clerks, you know, or, or anybody he didn't like, because he was going to do that anyway. It's just this is the, the, the venue where he ended. Right. Absolutely. Just to go to a broader issue, because you are such an expert in this area, For many, many years, for as long as I can remember, and we've been in this field, I've been in this field almost 30 years sex addiction has been a joke it's been you know an excuse it's been a oh well this is how i can get out of my problems i can just go to sex addiction treatment and then i'll have a problem rather than being a bad guy and so it's sort of seen as an excuse or male behavior or all kinds of perceptions and yet we know that it's just the same as gambling addiction alcoholism eating addiction or eating disorders that they're really the behaviors are similar in terms of the the end goal is different but the behavior is the same. Why do you think people have so much difficulty accepting sexual addiction when they have no problem accepting gambling and food and gaming and all of the other, many of them, behavioral addictions?
1: Yeah, it's still very heavily stigmatized. Now, If you think back, like compare it to alcoholism, we're kind of like where alcoholism was 30 or 40 years ago when we used to look at alcoholism as you know, a lack of willpower, a moral failing, and all of that. But we have, ed- you know, become educated, and our culture, our popular culture, has become educated to realize that this is a real condition and an illness. I, I think that one of the biggest reasons that people are concerned about accepting this as a legitimate problem is that they're concerned about over-pathologizing people's sexuality. For example, if you look at, at the DSM, the DSM has the very dark history of actually having homosexuality at one point, being a DSM diagnosis. And the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders
0: so, it's how what we use in the United States to diagnose people, if they, if they have these criteria, that's what's going on with them. And you can't just say someone's depressed, you have to go into this manual and look for the criteria, and then you can say they're depressed. That's what you're talking about.
1: Right. and And I think as sexologists, we all want to, you know have people embrace its sexuality in many forms, all of its many forms, and be very positive around people's sexuality. And people are concerned that if we have a diagnosis, that that's going to, you know, maybe over pathologize people, be, uh, you know, give them a negative label when it might not, might not be necessary.
0: So you're really talking about conflating issues, putting two things together. So someone might hate themselves for be desiring homosexuality. Someone might hate themselves because they're into panties or leather or are what we'd call, you know, atypical sexual behavior. And then they think they're sex addicts because they hate their behavior, they're driven by it, they enjoy it, they don't want it. So it under, it's understandable how people might confuse the issue for themselves because it's easier to say, oh, well, I'm just a sex addict than to say, well, actually, I'm really into this thing that I don't feel good about. Is that kind of what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I think as, as practitioners, when we are working with people struggling with addictive and compulsive behavior... We also want them to embrace all forms of, you know, their sexuality in a healthy way and really define what uh, sexual health is for them. So, and, and we don't want to overpathologize, but we can't ignore the fact that there are people legitimately struggling with an illness that is out of control, you know, when they're using it to medicate their mood, when they're spending, you know, excessive amounts of time, when their behavior is
0: escalating. Well, they're ruining their relationships, they're ruining their jobs, they're destroying their families. I mean, they want to kill themselves, and we see these people every day. But uh, there's so much research, and I knew, I hate to say that you're the research maester, but you're kind of the master of research in our area. And I know you read every article because you sent it to me. And there's so much research on this topic, I mean, more than we even have on most aspects of sexuality. And yet there's so little research that proves this doesn't exist. And what confuses me is there, I think there are a couple of critics out there that we kind of hear their names over and over and over again, and maybe they've written one article or one book, but they seem to come across, and I hear this as sort of the voices of this, rather than the experts and the researchers who've done a lot of work really being considered. And why do you think some people have an axe to grind against this issue? And why do you think they've taken it up as their flag when really there's not a whole lot to hold them up?
1: Right, right. Well, I think you're absolutely right. There is a lot more research in this area than there is for a lot of sexual disorders that are already in the DSM. So, And there's a pretty good consensus around the constellation of symptoms that make up this disorder, what it looks like. So there is still disagreements on terminology, um, like is it a compulsion, is it a, you know impulse control disorder, is it an addiction, and, and there's still a lot of research going on around that.
0: But we're really talking about what we call something. It isn't like we're, we're so like five different people are saying the same thing and they're calling it different things. And that's really, we don't have a common name, but we're not fighting about the symptoms or the issue. We just don't, some people don't like calling addiction. Some people don't like talking at that. And these are professionals arguing about what to call something as opposed to what it is.
1: Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, 90, 95% of the field recognizes that this is a legitimate problem.
0: Well, I hear the World Health Organization (laughs) recognized it as a problem, and that's kind of a more perhaps impressive response than some of our local critics. What made them pick it up? I'm thinking the porn issues just became so huge that they couldn't ignore it. And did they direct any kind of, did it get any sort of traction or into any manuals, or did it become more accepted because the World Health Organization said, I think in 2018, this is something we need to look at. We really need a diagnosis for it, is what they said.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's incredible. If you look at the recent prevalence data, the most, uh, you know, we had, there was a really good study that came out a couple of years ago that was a nationally representative sample, you know, very large sample size that found that about 10% of men and 7% of women were struggling with this. And you have such a huge percentage of the population struggling, yet we don't have a diagnosis. It's just, you know, it's just really crazy. So, you know, finally, I think, you know, the World Health Organization realized we can't ignore this problem and we can't, you know, just stick our heads in the sand when it comes to this. And it's been a real step forward because having a diagnosis in the ICD-11
0: Hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. The ICD 11. I know you. I know you know all this stuff, and you're so. But I just think, well, what is that? So, what do you? What is the ICD 11?
1: Sure. So, um, it's the International Classification of Diseases, and this is the book that all physicians use internationally. And so, it basically has all the diagnoses in and the criteria you have to meet to qualify for those. So, in January of 2020, the World Health Organization put compulsive sexual behavior disorder into the ICD-11, which, as I was saying, is, a, is really a, a big step forward for the field.
0: Well, it sounds like 90% of the nations in the world, or at least the Western world, have an accepted diagnosis except for the United States and Canada. <laughs> but I wanted to briefly get back to the offending piece because, you know, I've heard One of the reasons why sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior, whatever you whichever name you choose, is not really in our diagnostic manuals is because there's a concern that what happened is exactly what might happen, that people who are engaged in very severe sexual behaviors like rape or violence against children or whatever that is, that they're going to come out and say, oh, well, I'm just a sex addict. And therefore, it invalidates the severity of what they've done. I think that's one of the fears about it. And I wonder if you could speak briefly to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think people are concerned that it will, you know, play on the sensitivities of juries and judges, and people will get a reduced sentence. And you know, people want to see criminals be held accountable, and so it's a legitimate concern, right? I think people are are very concerned about that. You know, I'd hope that judges would prosecute a, a appropriately according to the crime.
0: It's really unfortunate what we see is when we really hear about quote-unquote sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior, whatever you want to call it, we always hear about it Was we often hear about it with someone who's done the most severe behavior. You know, the Harvey Weinstein thing, and I, I think he was much more than a sex addict. I don't know, but that's my guess. Uh, this story, you know, this is when it seems to come up. Or, you know, some really famous person gets in trouble, but they don't see the – the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who own a dry, and clean, dry cleaning business and people who are, you know, uh, working as a construction, just regular old folks who are coming in, having ruined their lives because of sexual behavior. So perhaps, and I'm wondering, do you think that the public opinion is tainted because all they hear is these really big stories rather than what we see, which is people crying and losing their lives and destroying themselves and the pain of what we run into?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, you know, the typical person is using porn and prostitution and uh, hookups and, you know, just you know, those kind of behaviors. And when sex addiction is associated with these very grievous crimes, it creates a lot of shame for these people and also for their partners you know, who are already upset. It might make them have more fear about, could this lead to something
0: horrible? So you're saying my my husband has had affairs, he's been cheating, he's had um, sex workers, he's looking at all this porn, maybe that means he's gonna murder someone.
1: Right, exactly. You know, that's the impression that that oftentimes people get from the media when when this is just explained as just sex addiction, right? Then all the partners of sex addicts are out there going, what's going to happen to our family next, you know, and and have a lot of fear and and shame around that.
0: And all that goes back to us not having a clear diagnosis in the United States, because that would really clear up that problem. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. So, I have to, if we go to broader issues, you know, you are one of the more significant figures in this field. Your father certainly was one of the founders of the field, Dr. Patrick Harnes, who I had the opportunity to help train with and cut my teeth in the field with. and, And, you know, what an amazing man he is. But you really hold your finger on the pulse of what's going on in this world. And one of the things that I've been incredibly impressed with is you have, in a very short period of time, started to train thousands and thousands of people as CSATs, certified sex addiction therapists. You have been found a way to really organize, structure, and create a certified training that, that truly helps clinicians or therapists understand how to work with this particular thing. And what I hear a lot of therapists say is, oh, I can do this. I understand sex. It's not a problem. You know, you can come see me. And I sort of think about like, well, you could go to a regular general practitioner if you have a headache, but if you have cancer, you need to go to a specialist. What do you think the reason is that we have to spend so many months and months of training and supervision and, you know, why can't someone just read a book and then learn how to do this work?
1: Yeah, it's a lot more complicated to treat this population than people think. There are a lot of, of ethical issues that can come up. Um, just the issue of, of disclosure to partners and how to uh, manage that, how to support the whole family as it goes through this process is very, very clinically difficult. The differential diagnosis issues, is just what we're talking about today making sure that people are getting the proper treatment. And if they do have a more severe mental illness, that they are sent to the proper kind of, of treatment facility. So for example, you know, if they have an antisocial personality, that they get treatment, long-term treatment for a personality disorder. If they have a psychotic disorder, that they're on medication and getting that proper treatment, if they're an offender, that they're being referred to an offender treatment provider and, you know, really participating in, you know, long-term offender treatment. And so really being able to assess people properly and differentiate, you know, get them the proper care, it's a lot more complex than people realize. And so I always caution people not to treat this population if you don't have training in, in working with this.
0: I'm going to bring up an issue that can be uncomfortable for both of us because we have spent our entire lives, at least, well, you're a lot younger than me, but I've spent my entire life working on this and deeply understanding the problems and the pain and and the suffering. And, you know, and I see a lot of the healing and the hope and I see people's lives change. And that's why I'm in it is to see these people's lives change. But there is this sort of idea that we've created a cottage industry, you know, that we're a bunch of people who created something in order to get a business going. So now people think they have a problem and they're going to us for a treatment for a problem they don't really have. So how do we speak to the people who think, Oh, well, these folks are just making money off something they made up. How do we, you know, I I understand the criticism, but I, it doesn't at all feel right to me. So what, where's that coming from?
1: Yeah, actually I, I see it the other way around the industry Uh, was created because there was a need. Um, You know, a lot of people in the the 80s were going to sex therapists and saying that they had a problem, and what they heard was, no, this doesn't exist.
0: Well, they still are hearing that from sex therapists.
1: (laughs) They still do sometimes, right? And so they went to the 12-step programs, and that's when the 12-step programs really blossomed.
0: And you mean like sex, sex Addicts Anonymous, Sexaholic, all of these support groups that are like AA?
1: Right, right. And the need is huge. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, we have suicidal patients that need inpatient. We have families who are devastated. And this if, if there wasn't a need for this, there wouldn't be so many people serving this population.
0: Well, and you have to note, as you just said that, and I said this to a reporter last night, I said, Tens of thousands of people go to support groups every day for sexual problems that they, you know, and they volunteer to go there and they go there because they're getting something out of it and they're not paying us. Far more people go to a support group like a 12-step program than ever come to any kind of therapy or treatment to see us. Thousands and thousands more. So if people are self-selecting to get help and believe me, not everyone wants to go to a 12-step meeting on Friday night when they could be having fun, but they go because they really feel they have to because they're so concerned about their problem. And that's the population you're talking. It's not us that's creating in industry, it's we're trying to support the people who are are pouring in for help.
1: Actually, the, the industry is not nearly big enough. Compare us to chemical dependency, for example. There's only like 10 or 12 treatment centers that, that, you know, support this problem. And oftentimes they're full. There's not enough resources for, for all the people that have problems. And also there's a huge differential in terms of who can get treatment and afford treatment. If you look, you know, at the populations, you know, many minority populations aren't being served. Um, Women are not being served. There's only two facilities that support women. And many of the treatment centers that do have treatment for this, it's just a part of their facility. You know, it's not, it's just like one little component. So it's actually a very small industry. People say, oh, this is a huge industry. It's not. It's actually comparatively a very, very small industry and not nearly enough for the resources. Most CSATs that I know have waiting lists, Mm -hmm. extremely long waiting lists. It's very hard to get in to see them and they're specialists and many of them don't take insurance. So there's a lot of people out there that, that can't access care. And so we actually need a lot more resources
0: What you're saying, by the way, goes, and I don't want to unduly focus on this, but it goes back to the diagnosis problem. If we had a diagnosis, insurers would have to pay for it, which I'm sure they wouldn't want to do. And without the diagnosis, people end up paying for themselves. And so it's a whole mishmash of issues that have yet to be clarified. I don't know if we'll live to see them clarified, but they certainly are. There's something we can talk about and understand. Mm
1: -hmm. And also the fact that the mental health practitioners are not trained in training programs how to treat this. And so there's, you know, the vast majority of therapists have no clue how to work with this problem.
0: It's not that they don't want to, but let's face it. I mean, and we can just say this. I know in nearly, there, there are very few master's level programs where you get your MFTs and LCSW that teach sexuality at all. And then they rarely teach addiction. And of course, when you leave school, what do you run into? Families that are struggling with addiction (laughs) and families with infidelity and cheating, you know, but nobody really teaches us those particular pieces in school. But because we're therapists, they expect that we, you know, know all this stuff. And of course we expect ourselves, but I want to talk about some things related to your work. You know, I know that you have taken a dedicated and focused interest on helping the partners, the spouses, the family members who, you know, they trusted this person. They believed in this person. They were basing their future on the relationship, their family life, and they discover that their lives were a lie, that the things they thought they had weren't, that this person they loved has been lying to them for years and years and years. And that's most often when they come to us, when everything has sort of come out. Um, What is your focus on those people and, and how do you think you're able to help them or how would you like to see them help?
1: Yeah, uh, well, as you can imagine, family members are devastated. And so often we are focused on the addict and what, you know, their process, but they're leaving an injured person in the wake that in what we know from research is that family members, in particular, the partners, like 72% of them are having trouble functioning. Just getting through the day is difficult.
0: So they're so overwhelmed by this that they're they're having trouble getting up in the morning. They're angry all the time. They're yeah. they find themselves confused and overwhelmed, which are all symptoms of trauma. And I think that is your perspective. These folks have had an adult, like a child, died, or you know something deeply important to them disappeared, and they're just kind of they're in grief and shock.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they they need support just as much as the addict does, and. Family therapy, couples therapy is so important. It's one of the things that I really focus on in training is to, you know, this is oftentimes a relationship problem and it requires a relationship solution to the problem.
0: Well, the the, the sex addiction problem is not caused by the relationship.
1: Absolutely not.
0: The relationship problem is that everything is blown to heck and this relationship is all on the floor in pieces and they have kids and they don't know how to put it all back together when there's so much mistrust and hurt exactly that's what you're talking about so i really want to get, but very briefly and lord knows we need to do this again i really because i want to talk about your work with partners you've done some meaningful writing extensive writing that people can actually access books that you've written workbooks could you mention the things you've written and how people can find it and then i want to have a, t- a real conversation next time about partners and relationships i think we needed to have this conversation because we want to counter misperceptions about what's going on in the media related to violence and sex addiction but your real expertise is partners and family. That's we have chosen to focus. So what have you written about this? How, do, how, do, how are you helping partners? So just a brief little mention about that.
1: Sure, yeah. So I have uh, two books specifically for partners of sex addicts that's Mending a Shattered Heart and Facing Heartbreak. And then I have a new book for couples on Courageous Love, which is a guide for couples conquering betrayal.
0: What a great title, by the way, Courageous Love. Oh, I really like that.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been really exciting to uh, see the response to that book. And, but, you know, my, my goal with that book is to just help couples really work through this together. And, you know, there it's, it's so rewarding for me when I work with families and couples to see, you know, couples stay together and get through this and, you know, the long-term recovery is possible for people.
0: Well, betrayal isn't the only thing that many long-term couples share. And I have to say, like you, I think almost probably a good 80 or 85% of the couples we work with do stay together, especially the ones who've been together a long time, because despite the pain, they realize they share so much, children, family, friends, community, church, whatever it is for them. And they want to throw each other against the wall because they're so sad and unhappy. But on some level, they have deep ties that make them want to work through this.
1: Exactly. And
0: that's what you're talking about, wanting to help couples that have something deeply intact that's been really ruptured by all this to find their way back to connection.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly, that's the focus of the book. So yes, thank you for mentioning
0: that. Well, you're a leader in the field of partner work. And, you know, I think we both agree that for far too long, the partners of addicts have been picked apart and blamed and what's your fault and what did you do wrong and why are you in this relationship? And I think we've come to realize that that's not really important in the beginning. What's important in the beginning is these people have been devastated and help you help them put themselves back together before they might even consider their issues because their issue is the person who's (laughs) causing the problem right now and what that person has done to their lives. Um, And that's what you're writing about from that perspective.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, if people want to reach you, um, other than the next five podcasts we're going to do, how will people find you? Like, if they want to find your books are on Amazon. I know they can do that, Courageous Love, and all of that. But how can they, if they wanted to learn more about how to become a certified sex education therapist, or you know, a therapist is listening and thinking, boy, I really need to learn more about that. How would they? You are the international experts in this arena. How would they learn more about getting trained?
1: so they can come to itap.com so that's i-i-t-a-p.com and um, connect with us and learn about the trainings upcoming trainings that we have
0: and everything's online now or a lot of it is online so people can take courses online they can get their supervision online so it's easier than when we used to travel around the country and teach people and every this is actually the world has changed for us in some good ways if you're an educator for sure and let me say to the general public, so if they were looking for help, I know you, you and your dad have a website, and, you're, and that's particularly meaningful, sexhelp.com, is that what it is? Sexhelp.com, that's right. Mm-hmm. And I bet you have thousands of people who go to sexhelp.com every day just asking questions or wanting to understand or...
1: Yes, and there's therapists, they can find a therapist there, they could, there are treatment centers listed there as well.
0: And I have a feeling, I just want to say this, that probably 90% of the people who come looking are the spouses. It's not usually the person with a problem who's racing out and saying, let me fix my problem. So let me ask that real quickly, because I know we really need to stop. But I understand I want to fix my life. I want my family to work out. I want things to get better. But what is it that makes partners take a graduate education in this issue while they're struggling and in so much pain? And, you know, why are they reading every book and going to every website and all of that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a coping strategy The partners are very resilient and they're often the ones that are reading all the material, looking at all the resources and it's a way for them to process the trauma and what's happened to them by educating themselves and learning more. Fortunately, a lot of good material out there these days for partners to read. Your book is another new one, ProDependence, that's very that's excellent for partners. Lots of other great books and materials for partners out there. So, um, yes, it certainly is. It's most, most often the partners coming to uh, look for resources. Absolutely.
0: Well, I think what you and I have done that really has helped lead some of the field is we're trying to love these partners and these families into healing. We're not putting blame, shame, what happened to you early in life that led you to making the decisions. We're just simply saying, you must be in a lot of pain. Your family's struggling. And how can we help you right now? I think you would agree with this before we stop that, you know, partners will say spouses, well, how come I'm not going to treatment? Or how come he or she's always spending that time? And I think what you can articulate really quickly is that these people have different paths. What these people are dealing with, like the partners are not addicts and the addicts are not grieving. Uh, So how is it they need different treatment and what are the different things they need? Because I know people are wondering about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So naturally, you know, for the addicts, there's residential, there's intensive outpatient, there's all those workshops, groups, all of that. Um, But the partners, there are also a lot of treatment resources for them. You know, there are also intensive programs for them. They can go get treatment for PTSD. There are some residential treatment programs that do have PTSD treatment for partners. You know, I think group therapy is wonderful also for partners to be with other uh, people that also have the same problem. There's a lot of online resources like your, your website, um, Seeking Integrity.
0: Sex and Relationship Healing has a lot of free, free support for people.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and different Internet forums. There's, there's a lot more resources today.
0: And just to finish up, although I really don't want to, Dr. Carnes, I want to talk to you forever. That's really true. There's so much we could talk about and we will. But if people want to reach you directly, you know, I know that you're not going to answer every email, but if they want to say, oh, you know, I want someone, Dr. Carnes' team, to read this and learn, you know, maybe she can give some answers or someone she works with, how would they reach you directly or, you know, your team?
1: Yeah, yeah, they can. We have an uh, email contact us on our website, itap.com.
0: That's I-I-T-A-P.com
1: iitap.com. They can just go to contact us and, and send an email, and I'll, you know, if it's directly for me, I'll probably get it.
0: And you have a whole team of people who are ready to answer those questions, and you sort of sit at the top of the team and say, "Well, this one should be answered this way." This one should be answered, <laughs> and sometimes you jump in personally if it's really, you know, important. Yeah. You know, Dr. Carnes, I just have to say how much admiration I have for you, how much appreciation I have for you, not only personally, because I've known you a long time and watched you help really develop a part of this field, but because, folks, I really want you to hear what a kind, generous, and wonderful mom and leader this woman is. And I have to say, Stephanie, you know, from a feminist perspective, to talk about people who carry it all off, you know, who have a couple of kids who are very wonderful for them, who deeply focus on raising their kids, but also write and teach and educate and work in treatment centers, you know, you're kind of living what a lot of women I think would like to be able to find a peaceful way to. Now, I'm not saying your life is peaceful, but I want to ask, I guess I want to ask, how do you carry that ball? I guess for every woman who's listening, how do you do all that? Unrelated, but you do a lot. How do you manage all that?
1: Oh, well, I have a great team behind me, Uh, you know, great support at the Meadows, great support at ITAP, great support at home. (laughs) So um, uh, I feel very blessed to be able to do everything that I do. And and I love our community. Our, Our community is the ITAP community and our membership is really a very supportive community. And so it's great to have such wonderful colleagues like you. Um, and other people that are there behind me all, all the way.
0: And you also have great kids.
1: Oh, thank
0: you. No, I mean, if they were really difficult, but I have to say to you folks, just to know, I'm talking to Dr. Carnes as we are living in this sort of, you know, online world. And I watched a very lanky teenager who last time I saw him, he was like eight, but apparently he's gotten a little taller and he's like uh, walking around, mom, what about this? What about you? And I'm like, oh my God, like that kid's grown a lot. So anyway, I just, I really appreciate you as a mom, as an educator, as a therapist, who's helping in a whole lot of people. And you're going to be on the planet a lot longer than me. So I'm really grateful that someone like you is here to carry that vision forward. Folks, this is Dr. Stephanie Carnes on sex, love, and addiction. We're going to come back with more. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Dr. Carnes, for spending some time with us.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.